The Lancet Psychiatry Podcast, bringing you the latest news and views from around the world of mental health. Thanks for joining us. In the past two years since the COVID-19 pandemic began, a lot has changed in the world of research. And while much has been said about what is being prioritized by institutions, funders, and publishers owing to COVID-19, far less has been discussed about what has gone missing and who has been left out in medical research. Here to discuss this are some of the authors of a recent comment piece published in The Lancet Psychiatry. Sally McManus, uh, who is a researcher at City University of London and specializes in quantitative research methods. Uh, Nice to meet you, Sally. Hello, nice to be here, Dustin. Uh, We also have Jenny Parker, a lived experience researcher who is also at City University of London. Hi, Jenny. Hello, thanks for inviting me, Dustin. And finally, we have Sarah Markham, a mathematician who works at King's College London. Thanks for joining us, Sarah. Thank you. Great to be here. So I'll direct my first question to Sally. Um, You write in the comment piece about how COVID-19 has impacted the ethical review process for research and some of the problems that have have arisen. Um, Could you tell us a bit about the situation right now and how it's impacted the kind of research that is getting approved. Yeah, absolutely. So um, we're really facing like a major gap in the evidence base around traumatic experience at the moment. So historically, the way in which we um, understand the prevalence and also the experiences and the context of different types of traumatic experiences like self-harm like domestic violence is that we ask questions directly to people on general population surveys so uh, a lot of the probability sample government surveys the birth cohort studies uh, probability sample panel surveys things like that we're asking the whole population or a sample of the whole population now As you say, when COVID happened, major shifts and changes occurred. And a lot of those surveys, which were in people's homes and talking to people face to face, they all suddenly overnight had to go online. And when they went online, big changes took place. We had to reduce really long, complex surveys down to something very, very short. Mm. And in a very short period of time, we had to go to ethics committees and get approval for these very short Um, questionnaires that were being administered online. Now, there were very understandable ethical reasons why there were concerns about the sorts of things that we could ask online, where it was okay to ask them face-to-face, where Mm. we were able to recognise if people were experiencing distress or were able to refer them on to services or support and things like that. But it has left us with a situation now where in the UK in particular, and I think this really applies to many other countries as well, we simply do not know whether the prevalence of domestic violence has increased during the pandemic. Now, there has been fantastic work going on looking at police data. There's been fantastic work going on looking at calls to domestic violence um, specialist helplines. But these cannot tell us about individuals' experiences and mm-hmm. they can't tell us about prevalence. Likewise, there's been fantastic work that's gone on with um, looking at people presenting at hospitals for self-harming or or looking at Google Trends data, but these can't tell us about individuals' experiences and they can't tell us about prevalence. So as we 
progress, we need to look at getting those experiences back in. But our feelings as a group of researchers is that this reticence from ethics committees is continuing. And we wanted very much to think about what the, 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 the ethics are, getting the balance right between involving people and protecting people, because both of them come with risks and both of them are ethical positions and getting that, that balance right. Thanks very much. Um, I'd like to ask my next question to, to Jenny uh, and maybe get a lived experience perspective. So how uh, would you mind providing your perspective on how, how we should shift things, uh, taking into account a lived experience perspective? Yeah, so I think from, from my perspective, this is about choice um, and about being fully informed about a research topic. Um, and in terms of putting the groundwork in, so that would be, as, as a researcher, you're asking the question, what would I want? Um, but as a lived experience researcher, you take that a step further um, and it'd be extended to what might I draw upon to support potential participants. Um, so other lived experience voices, having a panel and you're, when you're forming this and you're writing your ethics application um, and bringing all of those in. And, you know, thinking about, so researchers often provide resources and places of support that you can go to if you're doing an online survey, but it's making sure these are verified and these are helpful to people. Um, and in trauma or any research, in fact, where people are talking about their personal journeys, especially if this is online, possible options would be to spend time setting up the study so that participants feel safe. Um, if it's a qualitative study, then keeping the online room open for a debrief is always a mm. good plan. Um, there are so many options, and I think it's just taking that time to think through what those options are and putting in, you know, it may cost a little bit more, um, but putting that in will be really helpful to um, people that are participating in any research, whether it's um, video call or survey. I'll direct my next question to, uh, to Sarah about, you know, so once, once things land onto an ethics review panel, what, what do you think they should be considering risk it's a double-edged sword. It goes both ways. Uh, what you ask, what you allow to be asked may create some risk, but, but what you say you're not allowed to ask also creates some risk. Um, so I was wondering if you could uh, uh, discuss that a little bit. What do you think the ethics review panel should be con considering or thinking about when, when they're making decisions? I think where the projects um, involve um, the conditions and experiences of people who are vulnerable who may be experiencing um, significant degree of precarity, not just potentially in the short term, but in the long term. They really need to consider the possible costs and harms of this research not being done. The worst thing that can happen for people who are living in, in with great vulnerability and in really precarious situations is that nothing is known about what they are suffering. Nothing is known about what they're enduring. Nothing is known about what kind of pitfalls and barriers they face. Nothing is known about what they really need. Um, and so it's very important to consider when ethical approval is being given to researchers to what would happen to these people if this research isn't done? What, how will this research help them? And if their voices aren't heard through a piece of research, where else will their voices be heard? And 
how will people know best to help them if their voices aren't heard? Um, thanks very much. Are there any final comments either you would like to make uh, uh, before we sign off from, from the podcast? Uh, Sally? No, no, I was just really pleased that um, I think Lancet have been, um, and the whole series of Lancet journals have been so important at raising this issue of inclusion and diversity and engagement. I think there's, there's been really important work that, that um, uh, Lancet Psychiatry and the other journals have done about raising the issue of including uh, women and older people and um, different uh, ethnic groups. And I think that, that it, this is another dimension of that uh, in terms of uh, uh, inclusion and recognizing that not including people is also unethical. So we just need to, we're not saying that this is easy, we're saying there is a tension. And we're aware that many of the uh, readers of um, Lancet Psychiatry, for example, will sit on ethics committees and will be making these decisions. And so when they're deciding whether or not a piece of work should go ahead, instead of saying, no, I think there's a risk for this going ahead, instead see your role as being about how can I facilitate ethical inclusion so it shouldn't be an automatic no but how can this be done in a way that is respectful and inclusive and uh, it, it enables vulnerable people to be heard and uh, as, as part of that. Jenny do you have any final final comments uh, you'd like to leave the listeners with? Um, I was just going to say how rewarding I found being a research participant online um, in the last year, actually, um, I had an experience of something where I was silenced. I wasn't able to talk to anyone about it, but just being a research participant, although it was a little traumatizing, it was more freeing than anything else. Mm. Um, so the rewards, you know, from, from my point of view, hugely outweigh those risks that people are talking about. Um, and I think it's just letting us have that voice um, and the choice to be heard. Um, it's really, really invaluable. So thank you. Thanks, Jenny. And Sarah, are there any final comments you'd like to uh, leave our listeners with? Um, just, just many, many ethics committees may or may not conflate vulnerability, um, precarity with a lack of capacity. Um, I think it's within that it's so important that um, at the end of the day, individual participants get the chance to say, yes, I agree, or no, I don't. And having a precarity, having vulnerability doesn't mean you're less competent. Mm. And it definitely doesn't mean you're less deserving of being given that choice. That's it for this episode. From the entire editorial team at The Lancet Psychiatry, thanks for listening. Be well and stay safe.